0: The current legislative session has passed the 100-day mark, a big surprise to many observers. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, I'll check in with Jim Small of the Arizona Capital Times to find out if anything specific is holding up the session. And on a possibly related note, is any progress being made on the next state budget? Plus, water is on the minds of most of us every day in the valley. The Morrison Institute's Kyle Center for Water Policy is unveiling what could be a significant way to measure what communities in Arizona are doing about water supplies. We'll find out more from Sarah Porter, the center's director. Also, is World War III something national leaders are worried about or planning for? Peter W. Singer thinks they should be. I'll find out what Singer is most concerned about and why he believes imagining what could happen is vital. And Phoenix Magazine has turned 50 years old. Editor Craig Utier will tell me about how the publication has changed along with the city and how did they decide who to include on the special issues cover. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, water is on the minds of most of us every day in the Valley. The Morrison Institute's Kyle Center for Water Policy is unveiling what could be a significant way to measure what communities in Arizona are doing about water supplies. It's being called the Water Index. We'll find out more from Sarah Porter, the center's director. Also, Phoenix Magazine has turned 50 years old. Editor Craig Utier will tell me about the publication and how it's changed along with the city, and how did they decide who to include on the special issues cover. We start today's program with the state legislative session. Why is it still going after 100 days, and is any progress being made on the budget? With me to talk about that is Jim Small of the Arizona Capital Times. Jim, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So, Jim, who's meeting about the budget? Are those meetings taking place behind the scenes?
1: Yeah, meetings right now are are definitely and, and have been for the past uh, several weeks uh, taking place behind the scenes, uh, largely between uh, the the leadership and the staffs of the Arizona Senate and the Arizona House of Representatives, and and also. Uh, at, at varying points with the uh, with the governor's office, with people from from Governor Doug Ducey's staff, um, you know, it, it's it's peculiar. You know, uh, we're all trying to get a handle on on what's happening exactly with the budget right now. This is kind of that that time of year where things are real fluid um, and, and things can move quickly or things can move slowly. Uh, the, from what we can gather so far, it looks like the Senate is probably making a little bit more progress and getting closer to to having a budget plan uh, a budget. That they're, that they're going to get ready to introduce and, and move forward. Um, the House seems to be uh, not quite as far along yet. Um, I, I think that's a, a, fa- uh, a function of the, you know, the talks. You're just, just each chamber kind of having its own priorities and wanting to see different things in the spending plan. Uh, and, and Governor Doug Ducey really hasn't weighed in yet um, in, in, on, on either on, on what either legislative chamber is pushing. And, and I think that's in large part because we haven't seen. Full details yet on, on what the what the two the two chambers are pushing uh, in terms of the state spending plan,
0: Jim. Based on your knowledge of, of what goes on down there, what are some of those different priorities the House and Senate might have?
1: Uh, you know, the, the Senate, and the Senate President Andy Biggs in particular, you know, very committed to I think trying to maintain a a structurally balanced budget uh, for the for the upcoming fiscal year, uh, and and what that means basically is that the amount of uh, expected ongoing revenues and then ongoing tax collections are uh... greater than the uh, amount of ongoing expenditures um, and and that's something that uh, senator biggs uh, touted earlier this year basically said that that the way the way the state's budget was shaping up that that the upcoming year was was already slated to be basically if the state didn't spend another dime and didn't change its spending at all that that the the budget would be structurally balanced and i think that that's what he wants to keep um, i i don't know if that's necessarily uh, the utmost priority for for everyone else, I, I think everyone is looking to try to find a way to to get to a to get to a structurally balanced budget. But I don't think that they're insistent on keeping it keeping it there right at this moment. Um, that if they're a little bit short of that and within striking distance in the next year, I think that that's fine for. I think that that's something that would be acceptable to uh to Governor Doug ducey and to uh to the state house and then on top of that you've got a a faction in the house of of rank and file Republicans who um from what we're gathering, kind of have a list of a list of budget demands that they want to see addressed in the budget, things that include you know increased funding for public schools and for universities i think at the top of that list.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking with Prop 123 on the horizon, is there reason to think that maybe there could be more money at this point in the budget for either K-12 or higher ed?
1: If there is, I think it's going to be minimal. Um, The the draft budgets that we'd seen floating around a couple weeks ago uh, included a little bit more money for universities, but not much. I think that they were the total of maybe $10 million. Um, something in that neighborhood, five to ten million dollars for for universities. Universities want twenty four million. Um, K-, K twelve, there was no additional funding in that. Um, there there's some some issues about policy about about how funding is calculated for public schools, and that's one of the issues I think definitely that we're going to see we're we're going to see a lot of discussion on I think in the next week or two as as the budgets start to come out. Uh, it's kind of a complicated, real in depth policy issue, but it essentially amounts to how much. Uh, how, how do school districts calculate the number of students they have, and how, how does that calculation translate into money and in, into funding, and, and what kind of predictability do school districts have when it comes to planning their own budgets for every school year?
0: And, Jim, finally, based on how quickly the session went last time, are you surprised at all? It still seems to be going strong, and and how quickly could the session come to a close? Could it, Could something quickly happen in the next week or two?
1: Yeah, as far as when this could end, I mean, theoretically, you know, this time of year when, when budget negotiations are ongoing at the intensity that they are right now, these things can turn on a, turn on a dime. I mean, it can look like you're in a stalemate that's never going to end, and then you turn around and an hour later, there's... A, Word of a deal, and everyone is out scrambling to get votes. I mean, we, we, could, we could theoretically have a budget done by the end of this week. I don't know that it's likely, but it's certainly possible. Um, if that's the case, I think once a, once a budget gets done, you probably have two to three days at least of um, more voting that needs to happen on all of the other bills. Governor Ducey has told the legislature he doesn't want to see any more bills to sent to his desk until the budget's resolved. It's been about two weeks of that. That things are starting to back up, so they, they've got a, a back kind of a, a a backlog of bills that they really need to to attack uh, once the budget's done it'll that'll take at least two days solid of voting, maybe a little bit longer um, you know I think we could be done by the end of the month uh, It's also possible this thing stretches into the first week or two of May
0: Jim Small of the Arizona Capital Times Jim good to talk with you thanks my pleasure. you're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. A unanimous Supreme Court has decided Arizona's Independent Redistricting Commission did not violate the principle of one person, one vote when it redrew the state's legislative districts. The justices today rejected a challenge from a group of Republican voters who said the IRC illegally packed GOP voters into some districts while leaving other Democratic-leaning districts with smaller populations. With me for a couple of minutes to talk about that decision is Colleen Coyle-Mathis, chair of the IRC. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me, Steve.
0: So how significant is this ruling?
2: Well, it's very significant to me. It's still sinking in, but I'm elated. Um, you know, it's clear the Supreme Court analyzed our record our voluminous record and in, in reaching a decision and, and to me that's particularly re- rewarding.
0: Does this reinforce to you the concept of an independent commission because in general to some extent that's been under attack this idea that well you can't really you can't really call this independent there are all sorts of accusations about it based on the decisions we've seen from the Supreme Court do you think this reinforces the concept
2: Yes, I, I definitely believe it does. And in fact, um, if you read the opinion, it actually goes into pretty great detail about how our commission um, is formed and, and the constitutional requirements that we have to follow. And, you know, you're right. A big uh, criticism of the commission is, is that we were supposed to take politics out of the process. And I don't believe that that was really our charge Um politics is always going to be a part of the process. There's Republicans and Democrats both on our commission, and as well there should be. Um, I think that's going to you know, make for a better commission and better decisions when all parties are, are involved in the process.
0: There is still a pending lawsuit, which I don't want to get into specifically, but based on, again, what the Supreme Court has said, does this say to you that the system is at least starting to move beyond the lawsuits which have generated all these headlines and the commission can go on and do its remaining work, which to be honest with you, I'm not sure what what is the how often do you meet and, and, and what sort of things are you working on now?
2: That's a, a great question. Um actually the commission doesn't meet very regularly now. Ever since the plans were approved by the Justice Department, we draw of course both congressional and legislative district maps. And ever since those were approved those lines have been in place. So they were in place for the 2012 and 2014 elections and uh, they will be for 2016. So um, there hasn't been a lot of need for the commission to meet anymore because there's uh, been no requirement to, to redraw lines as of yet. So um, I'm hoping that holds and that our lines will be used uh, through 2020.
0: Colleen, as chair, you also are an independent and, When you first got involved in this, when you first decided this was something you wanted to be involved with, um, I guess if you wouldn't mind looking back and telling us your motivation, why you were interested, and then whether you could ever in your mind think that all these lawsuits would end up, I don't know, spending a lot of your time, you're talking to me about a a lawsuit and and Supreme Court being ruled, uh, having a ruling. how How does it feel to be going into something, I imagine, with certain thoughts about it and then having those thoughts, I don't want to say derailed, but moved in a different direction?
2: Well, my motivations for getting involved were really the public service component of the commission. We're all volunteers. These are unpaid positions. So it truly is public service. And I like that aspect of it. I also liked the the idea that independent redistricting might improve voter engagement. Because to me, to have a healthy democracy, everybody's got to vote. And so the fact that independent redistricting might contribute to that was um, very appealing. So that, that, those were my motivations for, for being involved. And, and frankly, I'm still very honored to have served and grateful that you know folks back in 2000 in Arizona um, got together, a Republican, a Democrat, and an independent, along with legal women voters and common cause and a number of individuals to bring independent redistricting forward in Arizona. Arizona's really a pioneer in this. And um, I just think it's the best way to uh, do redistricting is, you know, to take that away from the legislature um, because they are self-interested, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, they're self-interested. And, and let's give that job to the independent commission um, to do the best job it can, taking into account, of course, Republican, Democratic, Libertarian, all kinds of views, every view that anybody who wants to contribute to the process can.
0: And clearly these lawsuits then haven't damaged your spirit and your feelings about that.
2: <laughs> no, that, um, I've been grateful with with um, obviously the court's decisions to date and, um, and and for that third branch of government to provide checks and balances on, on everything that we do. And, and that, that just makes us a better commission as well.
0: Colleen Coyle-Mathis is chair of the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. And Colleen, thanks for fitting us in.
2: Thanks very much, Steve.
0: And still to come on Here and Now, we'll talk with Sarah Porter of the Morrison Institute about a new water index. And then later this hour, Phoenix Magazine turns 50 years old. We'll talk with editor Craig Utier. Stay with us.
3: KJZZ is supported by Heard Museum Shop's annual spring sale. This twice-yearly event features a selection of authentic American Indian artwork, jewelry, pottery, and gifts for Mother's Day, April 22nd through 24th. Herd.org.
4: It's here and now on KJZZ, stay with us, BBC NewsHour is coming up today at one. In valley traffic right now on the Loop 101 freeway in the West Valley, the southbound shoulder is blocked by a crash at 91st Avenue. Around the state, 81 degrees in Tucson. It's 88 in Yuma, 63 in Flagstaff, and 72 in Prescott. A special thank you to our Leadership Society members, Ann Sullivan and Robert and Susan Greenberg, for their generous support in bringing programs like Morning Edition and Marketplace to KJZZ. To learn more about the Leadership Society, visit leadership.kjzz.org. Right now in Phoenix, sunny skies and 84 degrees at
0: 1120. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. Water is on the minds of most of us every day in the valley. Are we using too much? How is the drought affecting what we can do? and what are elected leaders and water experts looking into to see whether dramatic changes are needed. The Morrison Institute's Kyle Center for Water Policy is unveiling what could be a significant way to measure what communities in Arizona are doing about water supplies. It's being called the Water Index, and Sarah Porter, the Kyle Center's director, is with me to talk about it. The Water Index seems like such a nice, simple name. I know there's a lot more to it than that, but how long has this been in the
5: works? It's been in the works for a good year. Um, it's a Actually, it's a simple name, but it's a big project. Uh, We are grading, essentially creating scorecards for cities and towns in the West, and it's a select group of cities and towns that we're starting with. But we're looking at their water resilience, how well they're managing water, Mm -hmm. and their capacity to meet future needs for water. Really, what we're looking at are the things that people should care about when they think about, how is my own city or town doing with water? And we're giving them the opportunity to really have some information that's very comprehensible, but not only about their own town, but about other cities and towns in the West, which might, we hope, prompt Hmm. some good discussions about way to resolve water challenges as we move into the next few decades.
0: Now, might it also prompt competition and good competition in the sense that Recently, probably a number of months now, but Phoenix and Tucson decided to collaborate. Might it lead to more of that or might it lead to saying, well, if they're doing that, well, then our city needs to do this and, and more.
5: Yeah, that's right on. It's our hope that we can highlight some of the really creative solutions that cities and towns are coming up with. Those kinds of partnerships, it, you know, the healthy competition of trying to uh, craft the best sorts of partnerships or the most innovative solutions. So w- really the whole goal of this is to inspire a more substantive conversation, inspire members of the public to ask elected officials Mm -hmm. um, really good, gritty questions about water management and move everyone forward.
0: If there was a scale, do you think people in Phoenix or valley cities in particular are really aware of the potential challenges that we face? Yes, Arizona has done better than other states in terms of preparing, but do you think we as the public are are knowledgeable enough to ask some of those questions at this point?
5: My sense is that people are aware that we face challenges, but they're not aware of what the real challenges are. Mm-hmm. And likewise, they are aware of solutions, but they're not as aware as it w- as they should be of what the real solutions are. Um, so yeah, I, I think the water index w- will help people get into a better um, frame of reference when we talk about water. I've had a lot of people in the last few months ask me if Phoenix is going to run out of water. Mm. And that's a fair question. You know, I mean, it's a fair question for somebody who is understandably concerned reading about uh, drought in California and potential shortage on the Colorado River. But that really isn't a question that's worth asking. Phoenix isn't going to run out of water. We should be asking is Phoenix set to grow in the way we expect and have enough water for the kind of economic development we want and for mm-hmm. the kind of quality of life we want? And I'm happy to say the answer is is yes. But we should, we should be asking that about all of the cities in Arizona and all of the cities in the West where water is scarce.
0: So are there ways of asking the question, as far as the index is concerned, to get to whether we can really come to a solid answer on as far as other communities around this state or around the West yeah. to know whether they're prepared or not.
5: Yeah, um, I can walk you through the criteria for Please. the water index. And so we really have five major criteria. And the first is um, how secure are the current supplies? And that would be the, the water that a city or town has a, has a reasonable expectation of receiving every year. Mm. Um, and the answer, while it is generally the same for the, the larger cities in the Phoenix area and for, for other, the larger cities in the West. It varies a lot when you get out of those kind of bigger areas. Um, the next question that we look at is, what is the capacity to grow? And what we're really looking at is, what is the stated expectation of that municipality for growth? If you can look at any comprehensive plan or go on the website of any city or town in the West and they'll talk to you. They will talk about the kind of economic development and growth that they look forward to. Have they aligned that expectation with secured water supplies? That's where we're finding, I would say, more variance. um, And I would say generally a recognition on the part of a lot of cities and towns. Um, They've kind of had to come to terms with the fact that they have a lot of work to do to align Water supplies with growth. Again, I, I have to say that um, the S- Phoenix and the bigger cities um, in the F- in central arizona and and for that matter, Tucson, have been dealing with this issue really ever since um, they were born, and they they are doing a good job of aligning growth expectation with water supplies. Not every city mm-hmm. in the in the greater Phoenix area, or city or town, but generally, I'd say we're in pretty good shape.
0: I want to come back to the criteria, Sarah, but when you mention that, there are so many worries about rural Arizona in so many ways. Might it be important for some of the bigger communities to work with these rural areas, or does it, in any way, does it feel like a every city for itself kind of thing?
5: That's a great, it's a great idea (laughs) to think about, um, about how, larger cities might be able to work with rural areas or how we can bring resources to rural areas you're right a lot of the municipalities in the rural areas just don't have the resources um, that a big city has And, and also the atmosphere the community of water planning in the greater phoenix area for example or in tucson is very different from the community of water planning in rural parts of the state um, we do have the Department of Water Resources, and it mm-hmm. is charged with assisting in rural water planning. Y- you know, um, I think the last time we talked, w- we talked about how that department lost a lot of funding. It was cut down to about half of where it was, where it had been in 2008. It's, it's Governor Ducey has restored a little bit of mm-hmm. the staffing Um the department. I think there's still a long way to go. But we do have a mechanism for, for providing that support And you're right, that's where uh, it's hardest. There's another challenge that doing the water index has helped me to recognize, and that is that there is sometimes, not in every instance, but there's sometimes a tension between the expectations of elected officials and the reality of water supply. And it can be challenging, Mm -hmm. I believe, for water planners to have the kinds of candid discussions that they need to have you know, uh, our whole system is designed to have elected officials rely on their water planning staff and their and their city manager for candor about where they are um, in terms of water and, and other natural resources, energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it isn't always welcome, you know, for uh, water planners to be as candid as they might be. I, and I don't, I, I can point fingers at a place where I see it's really, really functional. Um, I can see, for example, that in the uh, city of Flagstaff, there's a great deal of candor. There's a good, really healthy reliance, um, very hard work being done um, on the part of the water planner, water planning staff, the utilities director is Brad Hill. Flagstaff is lucky to have him. I can see that the city council um, is open to having honest discussions and It's super functional. And I'd like to, you know, that the water index has given us a chance to highlight that, you know, these relationships can be functional and do what they're meant to do without necessarily pointing fingers at places where it's not going well. We can say, look how well it's going in this instance, and this is what we should all aspire to.
0: And Sarah, let's get back to some of the the criteria. The scoring system as it relates with the index, how have you determined what a good score is and and whether a community deserves a good score or a challenging score or whatever it may be?
5: What we've decided to do is to, what we did in our survey and our data collection is actually give the cities a chance to tell us themselves, do you think you're very resilient, resilient, somewhat resilient, or not resilient? And that's what we're going to give as a final score. We're also going to highlight what the respondent cities and towns uh, said in terms of their own grade. Mm -hmm. We think that's the kind of Um, score that is useful for people. It really isn't useful if I give you a number, 78, 92. You know, what do you do with that?
0: Can there be an element of, I'm going to use shaming though, I don't mean it that way, but (laughs) but an element of like, you know, where the community sort of sees, wow, they don't even think we're that prepared. Well, what are you going to do to get prepared? Is that part of raising the consciousness as well?
5: Yeah, it absolutely is. And I've actually had some water managers say to me, you know, please be very, very, you know, honest. Don't hold back Mm -hmm. because... It will help me in my discussions with, you know, my city manager or with with the city council if we don't get a perfect score. We have done this project, we hope, in order to create a living project um, that will be a continual reference for people who want to be involved in the water discussion, people who want to know what should I ask candidates for office, people in water management who want to have a conversation with with the decision makers in the city, decision makers who want to have a decision with water managers, we think this will be a really helpful tool.
0: Sarah Porter is director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at ASU's Morrison Institute. We've been previewing the Water Index, which is expected to go public next week. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The United States has been involved on the battlefield post-9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan. Military members have also seen time in Syria and Libya, and some worry the fight with the so-called Islamic State could extend the country even further. But the U.S. hasn't been involved in what's labeled a world war in more than 70 years. What could bring that about, and what should we prepare for just in case? P.W. Singer is a strategist and senior fellow with the New America Foundation. He's also involved with the Center on the Future of War at ASU. His latest book is Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war. And P.W. Singer joins me now. Peter, a lot of people try to get the idea of a World War III out of their head. What made you think about it? What are some of the possibilities that could bring it about? Well, this idea
6: of great states going to war with each other it was something that shaped the 20th century. You had two world wars that happened and cost tens of millions of lives. And then we had the fear of a third world war that shaped geopolitics. It shaped the Cold War too. It shaped how you know you and I look at the Olympics and uh, you know how we track the medal counts. And uh, at the end of the 20th century, that fear seemed like it was put to bed. It seemed like it was put in our historic rear view mirror. And it isn't that conflict went away, but it was like pushed down a level. So we went from worrying about powerful states to failed states. We went from worrying about militaries to worrying about groups of terrorists and insurgents. What we're seeing, though, now is, unfortunately, a return to that kind of great power competition. So the U.S. and NATO are on their highest points of alert versus Russia. They've been since the mid-1980s, the height of the Cold War. And we have you know everything from bombers uh, buzzing over U.S. Navy warships you know, uh, and the like to in the Pacific, China, a, a newly powerful, confident, assertive China, and the U.S. are engaged in what can only be described as an arms race. You know, So, for example, they've built uh, more warships, more warplanes than any other nation uh, in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, plan to do so in 2016. You get the picture. In turn, we have a strategy on our military side, uh, what they call the third offset, and it's basically to offset china's high-tech growth so you've got this competition there now cold wars if we're seeing sort of a proto-repeat of it hopefully they stay cold but that's not always been the case in history wars start through any number of ways you know some wars start through uh deliberate choices other wars start through accident or a crisis that spins out of control. And if you look at World War One, was basically a crisis side. World War Two choices. If we're looking towards the future, it could be you know two warships scrape paint at sea over a reef that um, you know isn't even on a nautical chart or is near an artificial island. Uh, two planes bump in the air, or maybe allies get into a fight and we're pulled in. Or it could be a deliberate set of choices to go to war when people think they have some kind of advantage. So the bottom line in all of this is this thing that was thinkable back in the 20th century, a war between states then then became unthinkable, is thinkable once more. And so that's what we try and explore in the world that we created in Ghost Fleet.
0: There are some who would wonder, though, when you mention China, when you mention Russia, There's a a hope, I think, among some that we have learned from the Cold War to some extent, and that isn't it better to have larger nations that may be adversaries, but they have more to lose than some of these terrorist states or some of these terrorist groups that people worry about. Um, Is that a naive uh, attitude?
6: It's a hope. It's, it's not a guarantee. Um, and so, you know, in the book, we play with that. And, and it's a book that's a little bit something different. It's a, both a novel, but it's a smash up with nonfiction. It's got, um, you know, every single technology, every trend, and it's pulled from the real world. So we actually have two characters that essentially have an argument over just that question you asked, where, you know, one says, look, you know, uh, for example, the U.S. and China, they have deep um, economic uh, interaction in terms of trade. We owe them so much money and debt. Why would we go to war? Uh, and then the other one responds back, well, you know, who was Germany's biggest trading partner prior to World War I and World War II? It was France. Who was Japan's biggest trading partner prior to Pearl Harbor? It was the U.S. Um, so these things don't always work out. Um, I think what you know, we're really getting at is if this risk is becoming a phenomena, rather than ignoring it, pay attention to it so that you can explore the risks, understand it and avoid it either through miscalculation Mm -hmm. or through a failure of deterrence. So, you know, deterrence essentially holds if the two sides look at the war and say, this is not something that's gonna work out for me. It's that moment in time when one side says, actually, I think I could win. I think it's in my interest to go to war. And that's one of the other things to be mindful of is that The leaders on both sides, they look at the war as not something that they would want, but if it would happen, both of them think theirs is the side that would win it. And that's a risk that makes it more likely.
0: So in the world of statesmanship, um, what sort of leadership do we need these days to make it less likely to have something like that? Because there are so many people who, in the case of Donald Trump, people who are attracted to Trump because they say he says tough things. And it seems like President Obama gets criticized for coming across as much more balanced, much more measured. Is there a certain type of leader that makes it less likely for something like this to occur?
6: I'm going to push back on the idea of um, saying tough things means you're tough. (laughs) Um, It's actually, you know, and and as we know from both the schoolyard and in international politics, it's not the case. And often it's the opposite. Um, It can be bluster. um, And another side can see through that. Um, But more broadly, I think what we're looking at here is as a nation, we need to recognize that we are facing greater challenges than we have in um, over a generation. And I don't just mean on the terrorism side and ISIS and the like. I mean the idea of a return to the kind of competition that we haven't seen for a while. And it's a competition that has elements of it that are geopolitical. There's other rising great powers out there. Um, uh, competition that's economic in nature. That's where this may be a little bit different than the Cold War. Um, Russia was a geopolitical competitor. It was a military kind of competitor. It was not an economic competitor. It was also not really a science and technology and innovation competitor. We're seeing that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's competition that plays out in um, different domains, some of which that never existed before. Cyber realm. Uh, Didn't have to think about that back in the Cold War. Um, There's education elements to this. And that points to another thing that's a little bit different is our position in this race is different. Um, We've inherited uh, kind of first place, but it's the, it, we're not ahead in the way we used to be, and there's a catch-up sort of going on there, again, whether it's the technology space, whether it's the education side, to even, frankly, on the military side. And so what you're looking at here is the need for this important thing called strategy. You actually have to be able to figure out what are your overall priorities and do you have a long term plan for implementing and meeting those priorities? And that's a big worry for us because um, we do a lot of things great as a nation, but our political system right now doesn't do long term very well. Um, and uh, that, you know, if I think about that again, whether you're looking at it in terms of our politics or how we think about um, education systems to military planning long term is something that's a challenge, and you kind of compare that to you know back in the day you had an overall strategy during the the Cold War. What's that strategy now?
0: Would a long term plan have to be nonpartisan or bipartisan, and does that make it even harder to come across?
6: I think you've it. it ideally would be something that, um, while you could have kind of debates around it, uh, just agreeing on the nature of the problem, let alone the solution set, is something that we have a real uh, issue with right now. And then you have the dysfunctionality of, you know, even if you say this is a priority, how do you implement to meet it? Um, and so, you know, again, these are these are the risks. They're, they're, We're in a good place, though, as a nation. Um, I always think about this as, you know, for all our laments, would other other sides trade places with us? You know, so whether you're thinking about our economy, our innovation, our military, you know, there's a lot of things that we can put our fingers on and say this is an ill, but if you say, okay, if you were in the situation of the adversary, would they
0: trade shoes? And usually they would. You mentioned cybersecurity. You've done extensive work and extensive research on that. Is that something to... Worry about in the in the huge picture this idea that you know we've we've had issues with China um, I guess playing games with our stuff I presume we've played games with theirs as well uh, is it at a point now where it really is just tit for tat and could it become something more than that if some other group gets involved with access
6: Sure so I think the the risks here are two things that are playing out one that happens regardless of if there was an actual war and the other is kind of how the war itself uh, if it happened or how wars in general will be different moving forward so. Without the war, it's just the idea of um, essentially there's a mass campaign of intellectual property theft going on where we collectively are victims of the largest theft in all of human history. When you think about the value, the economic value of what's been taken and it's, you know, everything from the designs of jet fighters to oil rig equipment to small furniture companies that saw the design of their best-selling chair stolen and then cloned and sold to soft drink company negotiating strategies. When you bundle up the value of what's been lost, it's not in millions, it's not measured in billions, it's measured in more than hundreds of billions. So
0: that that, that risks your um, not just economic security but national security. P.W. Singer is a strategist and senior fellow with the New America Foundation. He's also involved with the Center on the Future of War at ASU. His latest book is Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war. And Peter, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And up next on Here and Now, we'll hear from the Phoenix Suns general manager, Ryan McDonough, about their head coaching choice and 50 years of Phoenix Magazine with Craig Outhier. Stay with us.
3: KJZZ is supported by CoBiz Private Client Advisors, delivering an integrated suite of financial solutions for high net worth individuals. More information at cobizprivateclient.com.
4: Good morning, this is KJZZ's Here and Now on 91.5 FM and on the web at kjzz.org. On the Valley Freeways right now, on the Loop 101 in the West Valley, the southbound shoulder is blocked by a crash at 91st Avenue. We're looking for mostly sunny and very warm conditions today for the Valley. After reaching a high yesterday of 90 degrees, it'll be 95 today and then up to 97 tomorrow. We'll see a few clouds rolling in on Friday night and temperatures over the weekend should drop back down into the 80s. NPR's Here and Now is coming up in less than 20 minutes. After last night's New York primary, we'll hear what's next in the Republican and Democrat presidential races. And after a series of accidents, officials in Oregon are looking for ways to make a coastal icon safer. Here and Now from Boston starts at noon. Right now in Phoenix under clear skies, it's 84 degrees at 1143.
0: You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now, I'm Steve Goldstein. As 16 NBA teams continue with their playoff series this week, the Phoenix Suns are at home after finishing one of the worst regular seasons in team history. But on Tuesday afternoon, the organization took a major step by naming interim head coach Earl Watson as the permanent man in charge going forward. Under Watson, the team only won nine of 33 games, but team executives were impressed by what Watson brought to his first head coaching job. To learn more, I'm joined by Suns general manager, Ryan McDonough. And Ryan, what qualities does Earl Watson have that made you think he's the right choice?
7: Uh, Well, Steve, I think Earl has a lot of natural leadership uh, qualities to him. Um, You know, he's got a an ability to command the room, uh, he, you know, he, he's, a, he's a leader of men. And, you know, what I mean by that is when you're in a locker room, uh, you know, with, with 15 uh, competitive guys, um, you, you know, they, they look for some leadership and somebody to, uh, you know, put them in position to be successful and, uh, you, you know, to, to kind of tell them what to do so they can follow uh, his direction and guidance. And, uh, you know, I, I think Earl does extremely well uh, with that. Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons that he was able to last, uh, you know, 13 years in the NBA as, as a player. Um, you know, I, I think he'd probably admit that he wasn't, you know, the most talented player uh, in the league. But uh, you know, he held on because of his uh, kind of knowledge and intelligence and his work ethic. And you know, I, I think a lot of those same qualities shine through in Earl as, as a head coach.
0: Uh, people who follow the NBA closely often refer to it as a players' league. That it's really important that coaches not just get along with players but have a good rapport with them is that something that Earl watson has that you don't think maybe other coaches do have
7: yes it is yeah i i think that's that's extremely important um you know like with any uh teacher i i think a you know, you know, a teacher can only be effective if, if the students are, are learning, uh, you know, what he or she is, is teaching, and they're able to absorb that. You know, you could be the greatest teacher in the world or the greatest coach in the world uh, technically, uh, but if, if the students or, you know, if in our case the players aren't absorbing that knowledge and information and, and utilizing it in a way that allows them to be effective, then, then, then it's worthless. And, uh, you know, I, I think Earl, uh, in a short period of time with us, he was only the interim head coach for... Uh, two and a half months, but you know, o- over that period of time, I think he continued to uh, grow as a coach, and uh, I think he really, uh, you know, established, um, you know, the respect of the players. He gained the respect of the players, and, and he built a bond with them and, and a trust uh, with them. And uh, you know, Steve, at the end of the year, we had a lot of players coming to us uh, around the exit meetings or uh, in the exit meetings, even saying, you know, th- this is the guy we want to be our head coach. Uh, he- he's tough on us at times he 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 dis- disciplines us and he holds us accountable, um but we also like him you, you know we also believe in him and what he's saying and in his program and you know I, I i know the results didn't manifest itself uh as much on the court this year, but i i think that was due in large part to the uh the injuries we had to some of the key players on our roster and uh you know some of the moves we made in season this year, and uh we're certainly excited to see what Earl can do uh with a healthy team and and a full and more talented roster next year.
0: Is it dangerous though when when players say that they endorse a coach? Did that give you any hesitation at first? That well, if the coach, if the players really want him back, could there be some issues there?
7: You know, I I, I I see your point, Steve. I think it's dangerous. Um, you know, if, if players endorse a coach because he uh, doesn't hold them accountable, or because you know they like him personally, but he's he's you know easy on them, so to speak. Um, you know, or else kind of the opposite of that, and he's done a great job. Over the past few months of of towing the line, but you know he he's he's pretty firm with the players. He's pretty direct with them. Uh, you know I, I think he's got a great balance for uh, a great feel for when to push them and, and and you know go at them a little bit more aggressively, and then also kind of when to pull back on the reins and realize that hey you know we we pushed these guys hard either uh, you know we've had a lot of games in a row. Or we've had, you know, a couple tough practices uh, that, that he has a really good feel for when to kind of dial it down and, and you know, let them uh, recover. And, um, you know, I, I, again, I, I think after a, a really tough uh, start, um, well, he, he took over under some of the, you know, more difficult circumstances I can imagine. Uh, just, you know, with the team having lost a, a lot of games, you know, throughout the month of, uh, of January uh, and then coming into February, uh, you know, we had a situation where uh, we had a player in, in Markeith Morris who was disgruntled and, and demanding a trade. Um, you know, Earl uh, immediately after upon taking over, um, you know, continued his bond with Markeith. He he connected with Marquise and 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 you know helped him play well and and, and build his value, and that that helped the team. Uh, you, you know, it helped us make a trade. Um, You know, with Marquise Morris that returned a pick from Washington that looks like it'll be in the late lottery this year. And, uh, you know, then after that, he he continued to, um, you know, bond, uh, you know, with guys like Alex Len and and Devin Booker, some of our, uh, you know, younger players who, you know, he, he did a really nice job of developing their games individually and helping them grow. Uh, you know, while giving them confidence and also putting the team in position to be successful. And you know, I, I think a lot of that um, is why we finished you know, better down the stretch. We were more competitive down the stretch of the season, despite the fact that we were missing our, our top three or four uh, scores for most of the year.
0: Can fans see this as well? Earl Watson works well with young players, so be patient. Or could this be a case of even as we've read that uh, you, helped, you tried to utilize him in uh, recruiting some free agents last time around – do you think he can be sort of that happy medium of someone who attracts big-name players but also develops young players?
7: I think so, Steve. We, we certainly hope so. And, uh, you know, I, I think what impressed us about Earl was it was not only his ability to uh, connect with and, and, and motivate our young players, you know, it was also that uh, he commanded the respect of some of the veteran players on our team who were, uh, you know, if you look at it age-wise, probably, you know, more in his peer group, uh, you know, in terms of guys like Tyson Chandler and Ronnie Price and P.J. Tucker and and Mirza Toledovich who were all in their 30s and, uh, you know, who played against Earl, uh, you know, as a recently retired player. So, um, you know, I I think, um, you know, once it was was kind of apparent that he was able to connect with guys up and down the roster and hold them accountable and, 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 you know, uh, let the players know that he cared about them uh, while also at the same time, you know, establishing that, you know, he, he was their boss and, he, 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 you know, that he was in charge. I, that, that's, that's a difficult line to toe, as you can imagine. It's a difficult balance to find, and, and I think he did that extremely well over the course of the past couple months.
0: How challenging a job is this? Because obviously you want to win right away. All the fans want to win right away. But do you feel like you have the right building blocks to be able to bounce back from a rough season that you had?
7: I, I think we do, Steve, and I, I think we'll continue to add to it. Uh, you, you know, th- add to our, our foundation through the draft and, and free agency. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the emergence of a guy like Devin Booker, you know, was certainly one of the uh, the bright spots for us. And in, in, you know, what what uh, was a you know pretty gloomy season overall. We'll continue to add to add to that core. We'll continue to to grow with it. Um, you know, obviously we're all frustrated with the way the season. Uh, went, and, and none of us, I, I think, could have anticipated uh, all the things that, you know, ended up going wrong this year. Uh, now, that being said, I, I do think we'll bounce back pretty quickly next year uh, when the team returns to full health, and, uh, you know, we'll obviously do whatever we can, uh, you know, as a front office and as an organization to make some changes and add some pieces, whether it be through the draft or trades or free agency, uh, to help, you know, solidify the roster for next year. Uh, we'll, ha- we'll have a more competitive team, and, uh, you know, hopefully we bounce back and have a good year, which, which uh, I, I think we will, Steve.
0: Ryan McDonough, general manager of the Phoenix Suns. Ryan, thank you.
7: Appreciate you having me on.
0: You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The Valley has changed dramatically over the past half century. As the population has grown, so has the art scene, the number of professional sports teams, and the variety of restaurants. In those 50 years, Phoenix Magazine has chronicled those changes and featured some of the area's most interesting and creative people. Phoenix Magazine's May issue marks the publication's 50th anniversary, and with me to talk about it is editor Craig Utier. So, Craig, 50th anniversary, this is, you know, 50th is a big number. It's a really important number, number, and the cover is what I want to start with, with this great anniversary issue. Because anyone who has ever seen the Sgt. Pepper cover, which I, I presume everybody has at some I would, point. I would think everybody has. Seen yeah, so it's, it's a takeoff on it, but it's much more than that because you guys got like the real person to do this. One of
3: the original artists, her name's uh, Jan Hayworth, and uh, of course she's living in Utah, of all places. She was a big figure in the pop art movement in London in the mm-hmm. 60s, uh, she and her husband. So they were recruited by the Beatles, to come up with a great you know cover for Sergeant Pepper I think Paul McCartney had a vision of a you know a brass band mm-hmm. and uh you know kind of a f- take on that so she uh, came up with the concept she uh, did life-size cutouts of all those people you saw on the Sgt. Pepper I know album wow. giant like material labor issue there okay. and then they shot the actual Beatles in front of that So for this, we we contacted her. She's done this kind of thing before a few times, Mm. and she, uh, you know, Photoshopped this one, not big cutouts of Barry Goldwater and Sandra Day O'Connor. Maybe not the budget for that. Right, no, and we live in a digital era, so what are (laughs) you going to do?
0: Well, let's look at some of the faces on this, because there are some obvious ones. I'm looking at... uh See Barry Goldwater. Looks like Stevie Nicks, Wilson Ladmo, of course, and mm. Pat McMahon and the the Gerald guys. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, what what are some of the really fun photos to look at? I mean, are there name some of the other ones that people can
3: think about? Yeah, I mean, you know, those are the obvious ones, right? We had like a, a short list, and the short list, you know, is there. Um, you mentioned a lot of them. Uh, some other governors too: Raul Castro, the first uh, Latino governor in the United States. He's on there. Rose Mofford's on there. 5 simonton Symington's got to be on there. We had fun with that one because we put a space alien next to him, and you know, <laughs> Fife still to this day believes that the Phoenix Lights was legit. Right, and uh, he actually is in our next issue too. But uh, you know, really personable, fun guy to talk to. So he's in there. Um, we were going to put the Family Circus in there because Bill mm-hmm. Keen is a was a famous you know Phoenician for a long time, lived in Paradise Valley. I, I think it might have been a t- trademark or copyright issue, but we really wanted to get at least four or five of those. You know family types yeah. in but um so yeah, a lot there and also a couple
0: blank spaces we left open right which we'll talk about in a moment right. but was there a, was a certain number did you match it to the number on the Sgt. pepper did you want 50 how did you figure that out
3: no we actually had to kind of the number of people more dictated by the uh you know the size of the magazine cover the ratio that kind of thing and we have 65 on there which yeah. was close to what the beatles cover had um and one of jan's other stipulations she wanted you know diversity which, you know can be difficult when looking at Arizona over the last fifty years. <laughs> but we did our best without being, you know, stretching too much on it. Um, and, uh, and that was really it. I mean, she was a delight to work with. We had a video on our our YouTube page that details her process.
0: Any uh, Easter eggs in there that uh, people need to look for? like is there a Craig UTA kind of in the corner somewhere?
3: No, there is a Grumpy cat. If you want to look closely, Grumpy Cla <laughs> Cat is a valley native. Uh, there is a Gila monster. And then there's uh, our state cactus.
0: All right, so let's talk about content because Phoenix Magazine's been a lot of things over the years. It's been sort of a combination of, hey, here's a great art story, here's where you should eat, but also some in-depth investigative stuff. When you looked into it, what have you discovered about the changes?
3: You know, it was interesting. Phoenix Magazine was one of the first, what they call city magazines in the country. It's a, a genre of publication. It's like what you said. It's uh, service journalism, you know, 55 best artisan dog groomers, that kind of thing. <laughs> places to eat, places to go. those are our, you know our, our core coverage uh, uh, mandates. But then also you try to, you know, win over the reader with the serious stuff inside politics. Uh, certainly, Arizona's been a fertile place to explore uh, you know social politics, racial politics, that kind of thing over the last uh, few decades. So you saw, you know, in the beginning, the magazine was really a booster for the valley and there was this kind of uh our writer cared when cornelius ex-editor did part of the feature and found there was this um uh, sort of uh, inferiority complex going on at that point you know this is like phoenix magazine was our coming out to the country as a big city metropolis and there was this kind of um overdeveloped pride you saw there like there's phoenix is the best place in the country to live and of course we're we have earned our place alongside the New Yorks and the Chicagos. And then it toned down a little bit and got into more substantial stuff in the 70s. Uh, you saw us tackling uh, racial issues, uh, gender politics, MLK Day and the Super Bowl, all that, Al- along with the great you know, restaurants and travel options. So.
0: There have been some big voices over the years. Now, I'm going to talk about it probably since the 80s because that's when I started looking at it, but Jana Boomer was a big deal. Right. For a while, David Leibowitz was in there. I mean, these were right. really opinionated people, and it's interesting, talk about the balance there and the same issue that might be your, the greatest doctors in, in the Valley. Right. And you're also seeing that. I mean, as an editor, and you've been in journalism for a long time, is that fun, or is it really challenging to say, boy, people go from, I almost think of like a... Uh, I'm going to think of like Beverly Hills Cop comes to mind. Right, like Eddie Murphy's cracking jokes, and then like 20 people die in the next. Right, day. it just seems like how do you balance the, the comedy sort of fun... and the gravitas? <laughs> exactly. You
3: know, I think you, ge- geographically you have to keep that in mind when you're doing a magazine. You don't want them side by side. We're always looking at that, but yeah, I mean, you do want um, some weight, some heft, some gravitas in it, every issue. Um, I think people get tired of uh, high country destinations, uh, places to grab a coffee and press get every week, every month. So. Yeah. Uh, That's always been a challenge. And, you know, one of the fun things about this issue was seeing how the magazine has adapted to that mandate over the decades. I mean, when we first started out in 66, social tolerances were much different. What we think of as political correctness was much different. You had people saying horribly sexist things, you know, but luckily not our writers. Usually we're quoting people saying that kind of stuff. You know, when Sandra Day O'Connor was a state legislator Mm -hmm. before she became a federal judge and a Supreme Court judge, she... You know, we inter- we did a story about her, and some of her colleagues, um, you know, called her a pretty little lady, that kind of thing. Stuff now that we get you drummed out of uh, the legislature pretty quickly, I think. But um, you know, back then it wasn't wasn't so bad. It's interesting to see how things have changed since then. So,
0: does it feel like if you were to look at a Phoenix magazine issue from a few months ago, compared to let's say the late '60s, does it feel like Phoenix has has really grown?
3: Absolutely right. When we first started out, it was a year before the Phoenix Suns, uh, you know, uh, debuted. And one of the articles we wrote where it was, is Phoenix ready for a major league sports team? And you know, now we have them all, except for soccer, which really isn't one anyway. So, yeah, I mean, th- that part of it, yeah. has been has grown a lot it's made it a lot easier to produce a city magazine mm-hmm. when you have those things to write about and that's the way we thought of this you know we we didn't want it just to be a naval gazing exercise where we're looking at phoenix magazine over the last 50 years we're looking at the valley through the lens of the magazine so we went through and we collected all these old photos and all these old articles and kind of like described what was happening in the valley through the lens of this magazine
0: earlier you referred to a couple of spots being open on that great cover we, right. we talked about yeah so all right, there are some obvious ones to people, but what are some that, have you gotten some feedback from readers? Or, oh, yeah. All right, so what what have they said? And has, it been, has it been pleasant or has it been, boy, you guys are dumb? It's or is been
3: generally person? pleasant, a little bit of indignation. and we, we were prepared for that because the artist, Jan Hayworth, she said that after the, you know, Sergeant Pepper came out originally in 1967, uh, the Beatles themselves were deluged with criticism. They didn't include Elvis Presley on the cover, for instance, you know, he's the king. And McCartney said something like, you know, we didn't wanna, uh, you know, he's, he's the legend. We're not gonna put like, you know, <laughs> Jehovah on the cover, right, of of our, our, mag- our, our album cover. So yeah, we, you know, we, but we knew that was gonna happen, so we left a female and male uh, uh, space open. So far, the early leaders uh, are Frank Cush, the ASU coach, mm-hmm. who we didn't uh, include, and frankly never came up in the conversation. We missed that one. And Irma Bombeck on the female side. And we did have her in our, our early list. It kind of fell off just due to, you know, the numbers.
0: Craig Utier is the editor of Phoenix Magazine. We've been talking about the special 50th anniversary issue on newsstands now, as they say, right, Craig?
3: Absolutely on newsstands now. And Thank the website Steve. as well. Absolutely on our
0: website. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Always a pleasure. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations on the Independent Redistricting Commission with Chair Colleen Coyle-Mathis or the Future of War or the 50th anniversary of Phoenix Magazine or even one of our previous programs, please go online to KJZZ.org later this afternoon. You can also download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. NPR's Here and Now is up next on Member Supported, KJZZ, FM Phoenix, and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.
5: KJZZ
3: is supported by Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art's annual benefit, a Mix, fashionably avant-garde. A night of entertainment, fashion, and food. Expect the unexpected. Saturday, May 7th, Smoka.org.